Uh, good evening. Welcome to the National Theatre. Uh, my name is Chris Campbell and I am the literary manager of the Royal Court Theatre, uh, which specialises in contemporary cutting-edge drama. So I was the obvious choice uh, to chair this discussion of uh, ancient Greek drama and women, the role of women in ancient Greece. Uh, fortunately, I'm joined by two uh, experts in the field, uh, Bethany Hughes and Oliver Taplin, uh, both of whom have glittering CVs which are available on the sheets that you have in front of you if you're interested in the detail. Now, I'm just going to say at the start, I'm aware that some of you will have seen the show, Medea, which is on this set. Some of you will be going to see it. So we won't be discussing this particular production in detail. There won't be any spoilers. But obviously, we are likely to refer to uh, the outline of the plot. So you might want to just stick your fingers in your ears if you think we're getting a little bit too close to giving the end away. <laughs> okay, so uh, let's start then by um, a general description of the, the role, the place of women in ancient Greek society. Bethany, would you like to say something about that? Uh, yes, I would. It's um, often uh, if, uh, when I'm being interviewed by journalists, there's a rather lazy journalist's question, which of course you haven't um, given to me, where people say, oh, you know, you're a historian. When in history would you like to go back to and live for 24 hours? And of course, obviously, I should say ancient Athens in the 5th century BC, although I think I would last probably 20 minutes in ancient Athens in the 5th century BC, because we need a bit of context here, I think, that this was absolutely not a proto-feminist wonderland, I think we can safely say. Um, and we're going to have a chat about this, you know, it, it's not black and white. Women did have agency and they did have status um, in ancient Greece, but I think it was pretty ghastly. And I, I just wanted to share with you uh, one of my favourite poems from antiquity, which was written by a man called Simonides, who came from a lovely little island called Amorgos, which is the most eastern of the Cycladic islands just so you get a sense of this is this is sort of what people felt about women uh, just before Medea was written on women poem seven from the start the gods made women different one type they made from a pig a hairy sow whose house is like a milling roll of filth she reposes on the shit pile growing fat Another type of woman the gods made from a fox, pure evil and aware of everything. This woman misses nothing, good or bad. She notices, she considers, and she declares that good is bad and bad is good. Her mood changes from one moment to the next. Now there's another type, she comes from a dog. This is a no good bitch, a mother through and through. She wants to hear everything, to know everything, to go everywhere and stick her nose in everything. A man cannot stop her barking, not with threats, not when he's had enough, by knocking her teeth out with a stone, and not with sweet talk either. Even among guests, she'll sit and yap. The onslaught of her voice cannot be stopped. 
so this is the kind You're of... You're not going to pause for a ripple of applause. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> Can we have some hisses and boos? This is the sort of uh, notion that would be shared uh, um, around the symposium in village squares, in bars. So life was tough for women. There was this um, interesting uh, name that's given to the first created woman, also called Pandora. Uh, but in some of the lines of Hesiod, she is simply Kalon, Kakon, the beautiful, evil thing. She's beautiful because she's evil. She's evil because she's beautiful. So, um, so women in ancient Greece were, uh, uh, they had a struggle to have any kind of status and respect in their day-to-day -day lives. And I think we have to think about that. And you all have to think about that when you sit and watch Medea this evening. So when, they ha when women have agency, when women make an impact in tragedy, in drama, it tends to be a negative one. Is that fair? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, I mean, the, the tragedy becomes interesting because in this setting of misogyny, that uh, the Bethan is painted, and the setting of uh, uh, repression, of uh, no political um, enfranchisement or anything of that kind, tragedies is, is the place where women are much more interestingly and challengingly explored. Tragedy doesn't treat them as um, uh, inferior, doesn't treat them as animals, doesn't treat them as despicable. On the contrary, it treats them uh, as something quite alarming because they're intelligent, um, because they are significant in the family. So um, the women of tragedy are far from simply negatively portrayed. And Medea is a particularly interesting example of that. Mm. I suppose I meant they're dangerous rather than... Ah, well, a lot, quite a lot of them are dangerous. I mean, some mm. of the women of tragedy are actually, so to speak, good women. Um, but a lot of the women of, of tragedy are dangerous, yes, mm. as they are in Shakespeare's tragedy, um, as they are in Arthur Miller's tragedy, mm -hmm. um, because tragedy explores uh, the areas of anxiety. It, it, it explores the areas of fear. So um, whatever men may say outside the theatre, women are like animals, you know, they're despicable, you just have to, all you have to do is keep them uh, in their pens. Um, in tragedy, they're given the freedom to display their power. Mm -hmm. not, always, not Obviously not always a benign power. Not all the men of tragedy are nice either. <laughs> <Cool>. <laughs> and is it true that those tragedies would be being played in front of a, an audience which excluded women? So oh. that's in fact men talking to each other about women. Yeah, I don't know whether Bethany has a view on this, but it's... Mm. it's I bet she does, I, Oliver. I do. <laughs> <laughs> the amazing thing is that we've got quite a lot of evidence and this question is still not settled. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I think what there's no doubt about is before long, as theatre spread throughout the Greek world, women became part of the audience. But were they part of the audience at the original first performances in Athens is still an unsettled question. Mm -hmm. There's an interesting point, actually, that, that there's now a possibility, we think, that some children were allowed into theatre, and those could be boys and girls, and we know this partly because there's a notion that when Socrates comes to his trial, those who saw him being lampooned in Aristophanes' plays in the 420s have by that time grown up and are possibly judging him. So, you know, that's a very interesting thought, that there might not mm -hmm. be women, 
but there could have been mm. girls sitting mm. in that audience, mm. and of course men on stage, yeah. you know, discussing and churning out these ideas of what it was to be female. The interesting thing is, I mean, I think what everyone would agree is, if they were there, they weren't just scattered among the audience as they were in the Globe. Mm -hmm. um, so there weren't the opportunities for all the hanky-panky that went on in the Globe. But um, they, 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 they will have been separated apart. And if they were, and an apart part, so if the women were all up there, you know, where they can't get into trouble, mm -hmm. it's, it is very strange that in Aristophanes' comedies, that love playing with the audience. Never once in Aristophanes' comedy do you say, hey, sisters, uh, or, don't, women, don't you agree? You know, are you on Lysistrata's side? Mm. If you are, say yes. Uh, it, never, it never happens. So we're, it, it's a very strangely unsettled question whether women were in the audience. I think what everyone would agree is that they were not the primary audience. Mm -hmm. The primary audience was men, and the plays were composed by men and performed by men. Listening to you speak, there, I'm reminded of uh, certain kinds of uh, religious building mm -hmm. where men and women exist in a roughly analogous relation as the, the one you've just described. Mm -hmm. And there is a religious dimension to Greek drama, isn't there? It's, in some sense, it's a religious rite at mm. times. Mm. It's a, well, it, it is. It's for it's a, a religious festival. Uh, people there, and they would have conducted ritual before they entered the theatre. I think I think they had a excuse my language a bit of a piss up as well. I don't think you know it wasn't a kind of sombre occasion. But you're right, it was mm. a religious experience, and it's terribly, terribly important for us all to remember that in ancient Greece there was no separate word for religion. Religion was everywhere and in everything. So if you were an ancient Greek, you would have presumed that gods and goddesses and demigods and spirits were lurking around the corner, in every ear of grain, in every apple that ripened on mm. the tree. So there was no option to be anything other than religious. You know, people often say, did, how far did the ancient Greeks believe in religion? But if you'd said that to an ancient Athenian, he or she would have said, well, it's like asking me, do I believe in the sea? It's there, it's a part of who we are and what we do. And what's very, very interesting about women is that they are very involved in the religious life of the city. So although I painted that rather dismal mm. picture at the beginning, because I think really we have a bit of a kind of morass, a kind of marsh of misogyny where women used to get this old hand sort of poking through. But that definitely takes place in, in, the, in the sphere of religion because women are high priestesses. Uh, mm. They're very involved in the rites. Uh, there are about 2,000 rituals we think were regularly played out in ancient Athens, for instance, and women were often involved in those. So whereas it looks as though all the stuff that we hear, the kind of official version of what it was to be an ancient Greek woman, so we hear this from Xenophon's household management, for instance, that women are supposed to stay in and stay quiet, they're not supposed to show themselves out of doors, they're not supposed to be speak or be spoken of, and yet... In the religious sphere, we find them out leading rites, particularly after dark, interestingly, um, and particularly on the roofs of the houses. So they have this sort of separate time and separate space when they are in charge. And some of those rituals sound 
extraordinary and extraordinarily empowering actually and good mm. fun to be a part of very weird I mean they have sort of weird festivals where they go and insult one another and carry around <laughs> baskets of unspeakable things and phallic shaped <laughs> objects and then they they do very strange things they, they bury piglets in a pit and then dig them up a bit later when they're almost rotting and stuff but actually you can imagine sounds odd to us but boy that would bind you together if you were a group of ancient Athenian women mm who weren't allowed to do much else. Um, so I think we shouldn't actually <laughs> underestimate what <coughs> that meant uh, to those women, because it's, it's not like arranging flowers on, on an altar in a C of E church. It's absolutely fundamental to mm. what it is to be human. Mm. Yes, I mean, all important occasions were within a religious framework. So it, al almost religion means something quite different in the ancient Greek world. It is rather interesting that there were quite a lot of religious festivals. There were a lot of religious festivals where men and women simply participated together. There were quite a handful of religious festivals which were women only. Mm -hmm. And of course, men were very curious about those. What did they, what did they get up to at these, at these festivals? Um, and there were very few festivals that were men only. The Olympic Games was an exception. Mm -hmm. The Olympic Games uh, the, was, was men only. There was a separate set of games for women. But at most of the uh, athletic, con the, the Greeks had athletic contests virtually every day somewhere. Um, their uh, women were there. Mm. Um, so it's interesting that there are these women-only festivals that lead to a sense in men's minds that women get in, into complicity together. Yeah. And I think in this play, in the Medea, it's very interesting the way that Medea builds up a sense of solidarity with the women of the chorus. We women, it's a recurrent motif in the play. Mm. We women do this and women do that. And my, my fellow women, there's a, there's a strong sense of, uh, of gender bonding in the play. Does it matter at all that Medea is not just a woman? That she is in fact uh, at least partially uh, godlike? Or, or is, that, is that a meaningless question too? Well, I think you, you, uh, Oliver's got this lovely line. We said she's for four fifths of the play. She yes. is a woman. She's a flesh and blood woman. That, that, that's as I see it. Mm. Um, mm. That for most of the play, she seems to be very, very human. Um, she argues like a human. She has emotions like a human. She bonds with the chorus like a human. She seems to be just an ordinary person. And then, I, but I think Euripides is to some extent leading the audience up the, the garden path there. Um, lulling them into a feeling that this is a woman they can relate to mm. or understand, uh, a woman they can sympathise with, um, because I think that is what the theatre does, even to men watching women. Mm. Um, and then, uh, late on, it turns out that she's not an ordinary woman at all, that she has special magic powers and so on. Mm. So actually, um, I was quite interested, there was a review of this production by uh, Mary Beard in the TLS that said, well, what the production doesn't get is that she's a witch. Um, and she's a witch from start to finish, and she's a witch. Now, I, um, much as I admire Mary, I think she's marvellous, but I don't agree with her at all about that, mm. um, that the Euripides play does not set her up as a witch, even if there were such things as witches in the ancient Greek world. Mm. Um, it does set her up as somebody who is good with potions, Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, is, um, uh, in that sense is a, um, a kind of uh, conjurer. Um, but m for most of the play, you feel here is a fully human woman. She may be a foreigner, but she speaks 
and uh, argues and uh, feels like a, like a human. Mm. Would the audience have been familiar with her as a character before seeing the play? Euripides doesn't invent this story, does he? Nearly, he invents it. Uh, <laughs> he reinvents it, doesn't <laughs> yes. he? No, Medea, the Medea myths go back a long way. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, so they will have encountered her before. They'll have even encountered her in tragedies before. But it is extremely likely that never before Euripides, in 431 BC, did she herself murder her own children. Yeah. In all the previous, I'm glad, I'm glad you agree, but <laughs> in all the previous versions that we know about, uh, the, the, she got into trouble at Corinth and the Corinthians killed her children, mm. or the relations of the king killed her children. And it's extremely probable, you can't be 100% certain, you know, we're not in that kind of world, but it's 90% it's sure. certain that Euripides, in, it was Euripides who gave Medea her most famous act, mm. the act of killing her children. Mm. So they both knew the story and didn't know the story. It had a very, very big surprise in it. Because there are five, we know of five extant versions, don't we? Where, as you say, the ending is different. And in all those other five, she doesn't kill her children. So I always think, this is total kind of sidebar of information, but I always think it's terrible when ancient myth questions come up on University Challenge <laughs> and they have to give a right or wrong answer. And yeah. I'm always sitting screaming at the television, no, but, you know, <laughs> there's an alternative there. And, and, and again, you know, the Athenians would have, would have heard about those alternatives. Just, just one very quick thing to say about these, these potions. Um, very uh, interesting that, that the, the, the Greek word is pharmaka, which where we get our word pharmacy oh. from. So a pharmakon is a useful little thing. Um, it's, a, it's a lovely word. It's been uh, written down since at least 1400 BC because it appears on the Linear B tablet, which is a very early form of kind of proto-Greek. So these useful little things were always thought useful. Inevitably, this was medicine and women are always associated with them. And as you say, Oliver, the fact that Medea uses potions, that doesn't make her witch-like. That just makes her like the other women of her time. And, and we now know this from, um, I don't know if you, I'm sure you all do know your Homeric epics um, back to front, but you, you will... <laughs> yeah, a lot of nodding. Yeah, sort of, nodding. Sort of <laughs> you'll, you'll remember, of course, that um, uh, at the end of the, of the story of, of the Iliad and the Odyssey, he, um, Helen goes back to Sparta and she mm. mix up this, this great sort of druggy mm. brew um, and she gives it to the veterans of the Trojan War so that they can forget their sorrows and this particular passage has been analysed, a huge amount of scholarly ink has been spilt on it saying does it show us that Helen is a sorceress like Medea um, but in the archaeological excavations at the moment we're finding a, a large number of these big pots left next to women and when you analyze the clay interior which still holds on to some of the original contents what's in these big pots are really industrial quantities of laudanum so <laughs> this is a kind of fantastic opiate <laughs> poppy mix that obviously the women of the bronze age were mixing up for their community and for the men in their society but i don't think that made them witches in mm. any way mm -hmm. that was just something they did and they probably did it because it was believed when you got into that kind of heady druggy state you were approaching the spirit world and it was uh, a female who'd held your hand and taken you through to the other side as it were mm. amazing so it's, ra it's rather interesting i mean the, the, it's it's a myth it's a, a fallacy that they all knew the story already that the story pre-existed on the contrary one of the things that tragedy did was tell it, it give it surprising new twists, mm. give it surprising new turns, even radical things like that. But once Euripides had established 
this almost canonical version of the Medea story, it would be a big departure not to have her murder her children. From then onwards, she must murder her children in, in Seneca's tragedy, in Cherubini's opera, mm. and so on. She has, she has to murder her children, mm. because that becomes her defining act. Mm. And yeah, sorry, sorry. No, 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 well, no, no, please. I'm just, I'm just thinking, because what, what it does do, it does something which was very popular then and now, is that it conflates uh, the, the kind of double motivations of eros, love, and eris, strife um, and the Greeks liked playing with that idea that Eros and Eris were bed partners and where you loved and where you loved with a kind of superhuman passion or an all too human passion then strife would almost inevitably follow you know what you usually find is that it's the, the strife are, are brought to the door of men and it's men who end up doing ridiculous stupid things mm. as a result of the love of, of a, a man or just of a mere woman but of course Jason suffers but Medea suffers in this as well so there's something very interesting going on there about who is it who, who is conjuring up the strife for, for, for whom I want to I, I want to ask a question which is just occurring to me now as you speak which is you, you've already mentioned there's no there's no notion of religion as a separate thing from life is there is their moral imagination the same as ours is is it a recognizable thing would we agree with them about who does right in these plays well i think that's why the plays are being written to debate that to re to, to, to make people think mm. i mean the, uh, these are not plays with um with black and white answers mm -hmm. to their ethical dimension on the contrary they've got open ethical dimension mm. and that's that's part of their power i don't think they'd have lasted if they got everything wrapped up and it was clear who was good and who was bad mm. in, in any of these plays mm. it's the, i suppose the, the i'm reminded because we were discussing it beforehand uh, oedipus came into my mind mm. and the thing that i remember most discussed when i had the pleasure of being in that play here was does he deserve it mm. and this mm. whole question of who deserves what because yeah. it's such a, a modern way of looking at the world mm. and they just doesn't seem to matter somehow whether you deserve what happens to you. I don't know. I think there's a lot in, in ancient Greek drama which uh, we absolutely understand in, in moral terms. And in, in a way, there's almost a kind of stencil that comes from ancient Greece and could be put onto the 21st century. Because, hmm. But both, both actually in drama and literature and in historical reality, all kinds of things. When, when ideas of democracy are first being tossed around really early, sort of proto-democracy, very interesting. So some of the laws that these kind of proto-democrats want to pass are exactly the things that we would want passed as well. Particularly, there's a fantastic one where they, one of the first things say, we must discuss how close our fence can be next to our neighbours, <laughs> which is this brilliant kind of nimby. But then also alongside in that same canon, they're talking about what should be the penalty for rape. Um, you know, and, and who, is a who is this a crime against? So mm. a, a, a lot of those ideas are being rehearsed and debated mm. in exactly the same way that we would sit here and, and rehearse and debate them today. I mean, in this play, clearly, um, the issue of <coughs> can Medea be defended, can her actions be defended, is very much um, what the play is about. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, Medea can be understood uh, and she tells you why she's doing it. So uh, it, it, she's not just doing it as a crime of passion. She's not doing it, and let alone, she's certainly not doing it just because she's mad. She's not mad mm -hmm. at all. She tells you quite clearly why she's doing it. And the question, is she in any way justified? And is Jason enough of a rat? Um, <laughs> is, he, is he enough of a, of a golden boy, a tarnished golden boy to deserve such treatment? 
is is very much a, a question that's up for thought. Mm. Mm. It's not mm. a question that's settled. No. And in one of those other versions where she doesn't kill her children, um, what they, the, the, the kind of plot goes that uh, she's in Corinth um, and she, by mistake, poisons Creon. She's using these potions. She doesn't kind of realise that's what's going to happen. Of course, the kind of might and fury of the city-state are poured on her head. So she knows she has to leave. And she thinks, and I say this only because it just... You know, it, it, it so brings to mind these terrible pictures we're seeing in Syria and Iraq at the moment of families having to decide which children to take with them as they flee. She thinks she can't physically carry both of her boys, so she leaves them at a sanctuary because she knows they're going to be safe because mm -hmm. no one would dare to violate the sanctuary of Hera. And Creon's heavy men hear that they're there and go and kill them. And again, that was put out there as who is right in this? Is it mm. right to, to wreak revenge or should they have let both Medea and her children go? You were mentioning beforehand, Bethany, about these these little statues oh, that you yes. wanted to talk about. It was just so fascinating. I'd, yes. I'd hate us not to hear about oh, them. Oh, no, so. I'm so glad you, you brought that in. So poor Oliver knows I'm obsessed with these prehistoric <laughs> figurines, but I'd just like to share my obsession uh, with you. Um, so there are these uh, brilliant things uh, that were made in Turkey, in Çatalhöyük, which is what we sort of loosely call the first town or, or village that we know of. Um, dates back uh, 9,000 years, sort of 7,000 BC is you when it's the established. First Existing the town first that existing town uh -huh. that's been dug. I'm sure there are more. I'm sure they're earlier, but this is the one that we have. Um, and it's packed full of extraordinary imagery and a lot of uh, female figurines. Interestingly, of all the figurines made in that period from 40,000 BC through to about 5,000 BC, 95% of them are of women. So what's going on there? Mm. Um, these lovely little figurines from Chattelhoyak are just what you'd expect from the period. They're these sort of big, fat, they look like they're these uh, illustrations of fecundity and fertility, uh, huge breasts, wonderful pregnant belly, big fat thighs. And when you turn them round, you realise that something more sinister is happening because the flesh starts to melt from their bones and from the back, these females are skeletons. So they are both life and death in one form. Um, <coughs> And I just have this kind of pet theory um, about it that I wonder if what's being said by the construction of those figurines is that women are creatures who can bring forth both life and death because at that point we know that when women gave birth, 50% of the children they gave birth to were stillborn. So in that early society, women were seen as flesh and blood creatures who appeared to have a power over both life and death. They could produce both from their bodies. And I wonder if there's a distant, tenacious echo of that idea that we're then seeing coming right through into Bronze Age Greek culture, into the Homeric epics, and then through into Greek tragedy, where that's what women do. We're worried about them because we don't know whether they are life givers mm. or death bringers. Just a, a, a footnote to that. You mentioned the word revenge, and mm. I think that, that, that relates. Um, that tragedy is so much concerned with revenge. Um, under what circumstances is revenge justified? Is revenge ever justified? How far should revenge go? Now, the women of tragedy are, are, are often vengeful. Mm. And Electra, that's going to be playing um, at the Old Vic, is opening soon um, uh, with uh, Kristen so Scott Thomas in it. Uh, that is very much a play about revenge. So women, just as much as men, are motivated by the urge 
to hit back at somebody who's hurt them. Are they revenging personal slights or, or on the whole? Or, or family slights. Mm. I mean, mm. it's, you know, it's, it's within the family, that, that, uh, that ever-persistent um, area of anxiety. <laughs> Greek tragedy plays on anxieties, so what are Greek tragedies about? They're about the family. <laughs> the, 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 the locus of our greatest joys and our greatest disappointments. Thank you. Very miserably, that's all we have time for. Uh, we have to clear the stage so that the company can come and warm up and get ready for the show. I hope you enjoyed that half as much as I did. I, <laughs> Oliver, Bethany, thank you.